Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Again with our old buddy Greg Palace, the investigative journalist, author of his, uh, his most recent book, How Trump Stole 2020. GregPalast.com, his website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palast, P-A-L-A-S-T. And Greg, you have been doing some serious digging into what happened on January 6th in Washington, D.C. with your uh, intrepid investigator, investigative journalist hat on. Tell me about it. Okay, some nasty news. Number one, the guy that Trump put in charge of the march is a guy named Ali Alexander. Now he's gotten some publicity because we filmed him, that is Zachary Roberts, who follows the white supremacists and been following him for years, filmed him in Georgia just before moving on to D.C., that unless they pick Trump, quote, we will light the whole blank, I can't say it on air, on fire. The S word. So he's already threatening arson in both Georgia and in Washington. We have him on camera. By the way, he's standing next to uh, your favorite, Alex Jones. That's the guy that the White House put in charge of the march on the Capitol to lead the march on the Capitol. But here's the new really ugly and terrifying information. And two pieces. One, we found out that he was officially Ali Alexander in Georgia. Why was he there? Because he was officially sponsored by the Georgia Republican Party and the national Republican Senate campaign run by Rick Scott to lead the GOP's get-out-the-vote rally. I kid you not. He was, their, he was their sponsored speaker, the guy. And this is after we reported his threats to burn down the Capitol. They used him to draw and get out the, the GOP vote. The GOP was uh, running fanatic. a get-out-the-vote strategy after the vote had already happened? What am I missing? No, no, this was no, no. This is not after the riot. This is before the riot. We reported on Ali's threats to burn down the Capitol. This is a couple of weeks before he went to the Capitol. We have it on tape. Go to gregpalace.com and on film. And 
after we made our first report on his violent threats, and this is before the Capitol riot, the GOP officially, both the state GOP of Georgia and the National Republican Senate Committee, brought in Ali Alexander, this violent alt-right freak, who, by the way, is cavorting with Nazis, with swastika flags, with the Proud Boys, etc., besides Alex Jones. They brought him in to be the keynote speaker for their rally for Get Out the Vote for the Senate runoff. Then we go to Washington, Tom. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just a little background. Who is Ali Alexander? Where did he come from? And why, when I watch this video, is it that he doesn't look like a white nationalist to me? No, in fact, he's, uh, Trump keeps pointing out he's very close to Trump. He's, uh, Trump is a super fan, and Trump always tends to note in their conversations that he's a dead ringer for Sammy Davis Jr. And his name apparently at some point was Ali Akbar, but he was convicted of, of some felony counts, so he decided it prudent to change his name to Ali Alexander. He's been somewhat co-hosting InfoWars with Alex Jones. We have him on camera. If you go to the site where he's yucking it up with a Nazi uh, and his giant swastika flag, and he's, of course, with the Proud Boys as well. But more important, he's a guy who is advocating violence. And this is the guy that Trump put in charge of leading a march from the rally to the Capitol. And what's even more dangerous about that, by the way, Tom, is that It turns out there was no permit for a march. In fact, the people who sponsored the march, you know, they're they're Trumpites, as is Women for America First. They held the permit for the rally. When they saw that Ali Alexander, this alt-right violent freak, was going to lead a march from their rally to the Capitol, they promised the Metro Police there absolutely would be no rally. And after Alexander announced it, They informed the Metro Police, and they told the White House, we want to remind you, there's no monitors, there's no police information. We have promised the Park Service and the police there will be no march to the Capitol. You have to understand, it's a mile and a half. You have to have monitors and porta-potties. The police have to set up special barricades. You have to be able to control the crowd. Well, if you set off a crowd without a permit, without monitors, without any notice to the police, which are undermanned, unprepared, and shocked, what do you think is going to happen? Right. So, and Warren, so this group, mm-hmm. uh, Women for America First, that was swearing on a stack of Bibles to the Capitol mm-hmm. Police that there would be no attack on the Capitol building as a result of their rally, this right. group there would was be no march. duped, was well, infiltrated. They, they I mean, why that, did Ginny Thomas's right. group decide to have this rally at the same time that the vote was being countered in the Capitol? Oh, they wanted to have a rally. They thought, you know, they're, they're supporting their man. We, you know, we, we protested against Bush's theft of the election. They want to scream and holler and protest. Well, that's America. What isn't America right. is that the police were told, don't worry, there will be no march to the Capitol. No march to the Capitol. We have it in writing. They've sworn on it. There are text messages. Plus, importantly, when they saw that Ali Alexander was saying that there was going to be a march from the rally to the Capitol. They told the White House, we have the text, there can be no march to the Capitol. And the first time that the Capitol Police, the first time that even the sponsors of the rally, the first time anyone knew that there actually was going to be a march, was when Trump announced it at 12.15 p.m. Now, when you launch a march of thousands and thousands of people with no police information, no permit, no monitors, no nothing... What do you expect to happen? What exactly do you expect to happen? So it was Trump himself 
who set off on this cavort to send these people out. Well, of course, the, you know, as I talked to one lawyer, who's a specialist actually at, at the permitted protest, he said, you know, if you send off people and violating of permits against the law with no protection, no information, you know that there's going to be mayhem. Well, you're culpable. So when we talk about high crimes and misdemeanors, sending these people off, knowing, having the White House been informed that this would lead to mayhem. They were told, in no uncertain and terms, you can't do this. And Trump so did it Trump anyway. So Trump triggered this thing, Greg. It, just to be very, very clear. You know, you could say Ali Alexander, and, you know, he may or may not be able to He's get nothing. an entire crowd of He's people equal. to march a mile and a half to a Capitol building. But yeah, Donald yeah. Trump Ali Alexander, did. Right. And, yeah, Donald Trump and 197 did. members of the U.S. House of Representatives voted to say, that's just fine with us. First of all, this is even more information they didn't have. There's no excuse, obviously, for the 197 members. But I want it. It's very important to understand. Ali Alexander can't lead tens of thousands of people on on a crazy cavort to the Capitol. He doesn't have that type of reach. It was Donald Trump, his superfan, who picked up his notices that there would be a march, despite the White House being told, you know, Ali Alexander's dangerous. They were told he was dangerous. They knew it. And they also said, you can't do this, it's against the law. You know, there's COVID restrictions. You can't have a march in Washington right now because of COVID. And so they said, it's against the law, it's dangerous, we don't have the monitors, we can't do this. And Trump insisted anyway. So understand, it was Trump, not while well, Alexander and Alex Jones were put in charge of this little march by the White House. The important thing is that Donald Trump launched this crazy attack on Congress. Now, he didn't say commit violence. But when you send people off uncontrolled and unmonitored, they're angry, and you know that many are armed. What exactly do you think is going to happen? You are responsible, yeah. Mr. President. You are responsible. Well, and they were trying to seize the ballot box. And if they could have uh, hanged Mike Pence and killed Nancy Pelosi, then the third person in line would have been, what, the, spe- the, uh, house, the Speaker Pro Tem uh, uh, of, the, of the Senate or the President Pro Oh, it goes to the Secretary of State, Pompeo? I thought yes. it went to the President. You, you might have me there, Tom. You're the expert. We'd also be a Republican. Yeah, okay. But in any case, I, you know, this was an attempt to overturn an election. The great yep. Greg Palace, gregpalace.com. Get over to his website right now and check this out. It's mind-boggling, gregpalace.com. Thanks, Greg. Did you know that 100 police officers, and the last year we have statistics for is 2017, so we'll use that. 100 police officers were killed by firearms during that year. Now, some were suicides, some were accidental shootings. You know, a few of them were bad guys killing cops, 100. A thousand of our soldiers all around the world were shot dead in 2017. A thousand. A little more dangerous, apparently, to be a soldier than to be a cop. But apparently the most dangerous position in the United States is not being a police officer on the front lines. It's not being a soldier on the front lines of combat. It's being a child. School-aged children killed by firearms in 2017, 2,462 of them. We have a new video up over at TomHartman.com about this situation and what we can do about it. You can check it out there. And uh, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And let's see here. 
Leslie in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Leslie, you're on the air. What's up? Hi, Tom. Just wanted to thank you for helping me stay sane over these months. I wanted to touch on two points. We have the word evidence thrown around a lot, and then there's the word proof. Do you think there's a distinction between the two? Because I do, and with social media, we've got a lot of proof of a lot of bad actors out there, including members of, of Congress. And my question to that effect would be, what do you think the likelihood is of expulsions? I think it's very likely, actually, at least for a few people. And to your point about the difference between evidence and proof, which is a really good one, Leslie, I always thought that proof was evidence that has been vetted. Wouldn't that exactly. be a, I mean, I haven't looked it up in the dictionary or anything, but it just, it just makes sense that proof would be evidence that has been vetted or demonstrated to be accurate. And not just accurate, but consequential, you know, to right. the way that would, would satisfy a judge or jury or people. Yeah, I, I think right. that... One of two things happened with uh, Gosar and Mo Brooks and Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar. One of two things happened with these members of Congress who are apparently giving representatives of a white nationalist movement that was going to storm the Capitol the next day, that was apparently giving them tours of the White House so that they could case the place. Either they did mm -hmm. it ignorantly, in which case they are amazingly, blindingly stupid people. Or mm -hmm. they knew what was going on, in which case they are accessories to five murders. That's complicit. That's being complicit. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Lauren yeah. Boebert is a, a blaring example with a photo of herself with several individuals, a few of who have already been <laughs> collared and been charged. You're right. So yeah. and, my and father then, taught you know, me the, the difference. So. Yeah. And in the middle of the insurrection, she was tweeting 1776. And the location yeah. of, of Nancy, Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this is a Republican from Q, right? It's, she it's only amazing. has her GED. Leslie, I, <laughs> wow. Apparently, she, she didn't graduate from high GED school? last year. Yeah, she has her GED, but she only earned it last year from what I've been reading. I think there should be a minimum of a level of education to be even allowed to run for representative or Senate, you know, and a psychological battery. I've, you know, applied for jobs where I'm forced to take a psychological battery for a $12 an hour job. Okay, we, yeah. we need well, level heads in Congress. You know, this comes up a lot on this show, Leslie, and I'll, I'll just give you my kind of boilerplate response. When we start placing restrictions beyond citizenship on who can run for public office, we are giving power to the current establishment, to the current administration, to prevent people from running for political office. If a certain educational requirement was necessary or a certain level of sanity, who administers the sanity test? And if Donald Trump's administration is administering that sanity test, would I then be allowed to run for, for Congress? I doubt it. So I, I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. What we need to do is realize that, in my opinion, that, that elections are that sanity test. Elections are where people determine whether somebody's education is appropriate to the job or their temperament or anything else. And the problem well, you don't that we have, have a clear is our elections of the Constitution. have been... Well, I, I, yeah, and I get that. But my point is that our elections have been corrupted not in the way Donald Trump is talking about. They've been corrupted by the Supreme Court decisions in 76 and 78, Buckley and Bilotti, and, and 2010, Citizens United, that allowed billionaires and big corporations to come into the electoral space and run just blanket, wall-to-wall, -wall, carpet bomb voters with ads 
promoting their candidates, the candidates that they've bought and paid off, or trashing and destroying the candidates that they think are going to raise their taxes. And as a result of that, the average voter isn't able to make that kind of rational decision about who they want representing them in an environment, uh, in an open environment of actual facts. Am I, does that make sense, Leslie? No, very much so. It's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I want competent, intelligent people with our you know, country on their hands, but, you know, I just can't believe she got in. But, you know, that just tells you yeah. it, it seems like an infiltration of QAnon and conspiracy theorists. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is another example. Green. And yeah. I just read that she wants to file articles of impeachment against Joe Biden on day one. Right. Right. It would be interesting to look into who actually funded those two campaigns. And I'm not talking about the official campaign donations that show up at OpenSecrets.org. I'm talking about who were the black money groups that were buying millions of dollars worth of advertising in those congressional districts. Right. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Leslie. I would love to know the answer to that question. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Michael Lewis's new book, The Fifth Risk. And this is from the prologue, which is titled Lost in Transition. Chris Christie noticed a piece in the New York Times. That's how it all started. The New Jersey governor had dropped out of the presidential race in February 2016 and thrown what support he had behind Donald Trump. In late April, he saw the article. It described meetings between representatives of the remaining candidates still in the race, Trump, John Kasich, Ted Cruz, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders, and the Obama White House. Anybody who still had any kind of shot at becoming president of the United States apparently needed to start preparing to run the federal government. The guy Trump sent to the meeting was, in Christie's estimations, comically underqualified. 
Christie called up Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, to ask why this critical job hadn't been handed to someone who actually knew something about government. Lewandowski said, we don't have anyone. Christie volunteered himself for the job, head of the Donald Trump presidential transition team. It's the next best thing to being president, he told friends. You get to plan the presidency. He went to see Trump about it. Trump said he didn't want a presidential transition team. Why did anyone need to plan anything before he actually became president? It's legally required, said Christie. Trump asked where the money was going to come from to pay for the transition team. Christie explained that Trump could either pay it for it himself or take it out of campaign funds. Trump didn't want to pay for it himself, and he didn't want to take it out of campaign funds either, but he agreed grudgingly that Christie could go ahead and raise a separate fund to pay for his transition team. But not too much, he said. And so Christie set out to prepare for the unlikely event that Donald Trump would one day be elected president of the United States. Not everyone in Trump's campaign was happy to see him on the job. In June, Christie received a note from Trump advisor Paul Manafort. The kid is paranoid about you, Manafort said. The kid was Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law. Back in 2005, when he was U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey, Christie had prosecuted and jailed Kushner's father, Charles, for tax fraud. Christie's investigation revealed in the bargain that Charles Kushner had hired a prostitute to seduce his own brother-in-law, whom he suspected of cooperating with Christie, had videotaped the sexual encounter and sent the tape to his sister. The Kushners apparently took their grudges seriously, and Christie sensed that Jared still harbored one against him. At the end of each week, Christie handed over binders with lists of names of people who might do the job well to Jared and Donald and Eric and the others. They probed everything, says a senior Trump transition official. Who is this person? Where did this person come from? They only ever rejected one person, Paul Manafort's secretary. The first time Donald Trump paid attention to any of this was when he read about it in the newspaper. The story revealed that Trump's very own transition team, led by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, had raised several million dollars to pay for its own staff. The moment he saw it, Trump called Steve Bannon, the chief executive of his campaign, from his office on the 26th floor of the Trump Tower and told him to come immediately to his residence many floors above. Bannon stepped off the elevator to find the governor of New Jersey seated on a sofa, being hollered at. Trump was apoplectic, actually yelling, You're stealing my money! You're stealing my effing money! What the F is this? Seeing Bannon, Trump turned on him and screamed, Why are you letting him steal my effing money? Bannon and Christie together set out to explain to Trump federal law. It continues from there. The book is The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. Marty in Wixom, Michigan. Hey, Marty, it's been a long time since I've heard the, the name Wixom. I've, I've been through your town once. What's up? Hey, Tom. I love your show. Uh, another little nostalgia for you. My father worked for WJM Radio back in the mid-50s. Oh, wow. I worked in, for WJM TV in the mid-60s. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that. I lived for many years in East Lansing, so very familiar with that. Yeah, that's when radio and television were local. You know, the owners of that station named the station after their son. They had, their son, his name was Jim, and he was born about a year before they built that station, that radio and TV station, and they named it after him, which I always thought was kind of cute. Anyhow, what's up, Marty? Well, I'd like to make a point that I just haven't heard mentioned much in the media in all their discussion about Trump's claims about election fraud and the resulting riot and so forth. And that is that people really need to apply common sense to the election results. 
Donald Trump has never been supported by a majority of the Americans. He won in 2016 with only 46.1% of the vote. He barely squeezed. And that was only half of the potential American electorate. That's right. And once in office, he presided over a complete failure of the worst health epidemic in 100 years, far more infections and deaths than any other country. He also presided over the worst economic recession since the Great Depression. Tens of millions of persons losing their jobs, hundreds of thousands of people in line to pick up food baskets. His popularity rating never even hit 50% for his entire presidency, and his approval rating was in the low 40s when the election occurred. Moreover, all of the traditional pre-election polls showed him losing nationwide and in all of the battleground states. So with all of that, why would anyone think that it required massive fraud for him to be defeated in the election? Because Trump and 197 Republicans in the House of Representatives and all but two or three Republicans in the United States Senate have been saying ever since Election Day, we think there's something skeezy. We think they're up to something. And they've been saying this, you know, in part because they don't want to suffer the wrath of Donald Trump. But also they've been saying it because they can't not say it. Because for 40 years, the Republican Party has been using the big lie of voter fraud to make it harder and harder for black people in particular, and secondarily, Hispanics, students, and Social Security voters to vote. For example, just here's one simple example. They don't want people on Social Security to vote, and the way you know that is they say, your driver's license can't have expired. Well, what happens when people get into their 80s? They stop driving, they let the driver's license expire. It's still your driver's license, it's still got your picture on it, it's still a state-issued ID, but no, you can't use that to vote anymore because we don't want Social Security voters. The Republicans have been very strategic about this for 40 years now. And so they can't just come out and say, oh, there was no voter fraud. Donald Trump actually lost the election by 7 million votes. Joe Biden actually won. They can't say that because they would have to admit that for 40 years they've been lying to everybody. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people just need to use their common sense. (laughs) There was no need for fraud for him to lose. He was on his way to losing regardless. I'm with you. you. I'm absolutely with you. Marty, thanks a lot for the call. Jim in Long Beach, California. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I I really appreciate your uh, presenting um, information as a public education service. And that's where uh, the common sense has fallen off the cliff long ago. Trump needs to call off the Sunday attacks. So there has to be some kind of pressure and negotiation happening. Are you aware of that? Because if that happens, uh, you know, take it from there. You're talking about the 17th? All the capitals in the country, yeah. the state capitals are... This is mostly from that bizarre conspiracy group, you know, because the 17th letter of the alphabet is Q. He has to call it off. I don't think he'll do that. I think Donald Trump is trying to punish America right now. We did not I know, but give him our votes, still, and he one hates last, One last deal. Offer him some kind of a deal. You know, I'm not that frightened that I'm willing to let Donald Trump skate, just speaking for myself. But I'm guessing that that's also true of state attorneys general all across the country. And, you know, at the federal level, God only knows. I mean, he's got a part-timer in there as our attorney general now. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I'll be back with your calls in just a minute. If your call gets picked up and you don't hear from anybody, just hang out. We'll we'll get right to you.
The hidden history of the Supreme Court tells the story of Nixon and Reagan's committing treason to steal the White House. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And boy, what a day, huh? And what a time. One other bit of news, as it were, that I wanted to share with you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. This was a tweet from Eric Fengdi, F-E-I-N-G-I-D-I-N-G-I. I may be mispronouncing his name. My apologies if so. But he's been very outspoken about COVID and what's going on. And there's this new variant. We're seeing just explosions in COVID infections happening all around the world right now. Uh, China just locked down 22 million people. Here's what Dr. Feigelding tweeted. He said, Australia suddenly saw five infections of the UK B117 variant among four quarantine travelers and a cleaner on the same floor This is of a hotel. Say, if you fly into Australia right now, you have to spend the first two weeks in a hotel in quarantine. You literally can't leave your room. They have guards in the halls. Can't leave your room. You have no contact with anybody. And he says, so Australia suddenly saw five infections of this new variant, B117, among four quarantine travelers and a cleaner on the same floor. But get this, none of the five people occupied the same room. The old original COVID was relatively not contagious. Relatively speaking, it wasn't all that contagious. And so you would have to inhale a huge quantity of the virus for it to set up shop in your body. It appears that the virus has gotten, you know, because there's been a change, the mutation was in the spike protein. It appears that that mutation means that the virus can hook into your body much, much more easily. So just a few little tiny particles of virus rather than thousands or even millions that you would normally need to create an infection. Just, you know, a, a much smaller number. Nobody knows what this number is. This is the research they're doing right now, but apparently a much smaller number. And therefore, the little wisp of breath you might get from somebody who was six feet away didn't used to contain enough viruses, even though there was virus in it, it didn't contain enough to really infect you. Now it does with this B117 variant. Different parts of the same building. If it has a circulating air system and it's circulating the air while you're in that building, the virus will move from room to room if all of this proves out. And it sure looks like it is as we're seeing this thing explode all over the world, which is going to be very concerning news, like for people who live in hotels and apartment buildings, high density housing. That's what China is freaking out about in a big way right now, too. You know, we had a playbook to deal with the pandemic that Obama left and Donald Trump shut those down. He threw it away and fired all the people, closed the departments, both the one in the White House to deal with pandemics and the one in the National Security Administration to deal with the pandemic or the Office of National Security. I mean, this is just nuts. Anyhow, pick up your phone calls here. Kevin in Cedar Lake, Indiana. Hey, Kevin, thank you for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking the call. One of the things that I've noticed, in a, a sort of a thread that I need to share with everybody is that Donald Trump is an addict addicted to his lies. He has so many codependent enablers, you know, both in the Congress and in his, his army of white supremacists. The truth of the matter is that race is the lie that America was built on. And what I mean by that is 
it presumes that there are that different colors of people are different races, and that is the fundamental lie that leads to supremacy, uh, distinction without any real difference. It leads to white supremacy, and we have to dismantle that with the truth mm. until people understand that that is the fundamental cause, the lie of race. And until yeah. we start to take the multi-generational and multi-national uh, track to understanding that lie and its effect on us, we will never find ourselves free from that sepsis of supremacy. And I just wanted to get that out and share it. And, well, I think uh, that's very well have... said, Kevin. And, and if I could just add to that, sure. the we that you and I are talking about is white people. When white oh, yeah, people yeah, start yeah. looking at black people with an eye that views the difference between being white and being black the same way that white people have traditionally viewed the difference between being a blonde or a brunette. In other words, oh, there's just a, a slight difference in the way that person looks. Yeah. But they're, they're just as smart as I am. They're just as lovable as I am. They're just as, as capable as I am. They're just right. as human as exactly. I am. When white people get to that point, then this all goes away. But white, well, it, I I'd say I, probably I, I, a large minority of white people are a hell of a long way away from that point. You're right, but I, I respectfully disagree that it goes away. It has to be deinstitutionalized. You know what I mean? Of course. That supremacy yes. has been built in and baked into not only, you know, you had it, you had it on the program with your book club where the papal bull from uh, Pope Philip, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where from the 1400s, where, uh, yeah, yeah, from the 14. It's been going on for that long, so we have yeah. a 500 year history or 600 year history of of treating anyone who looks like you and me, that we can sell people who look like Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or the new Senator Warnock, you know, from Georgia. Mm -hmm. God bless Coffee, Georgia, yeah. by the way. Yeah. But the thing is that until we realize that we are all members of the human race and that we just happen to manifest like carrots or tomatoes or any other life form, we just manifest in different colors and that there is no real distinction and difference. You know, because the African-American gentleman who called in, you know, he says, you know, the, he respectfully disagreed with you and drew distinction about how even in the 50s and 60s or where, you know, we had this uh, building of the middle We had legal segregation in the 50s and, black. and the 60s. Yeah, well, I mean, even during that time, that was still a problem. So we've got to do that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just saying. Oh, it's always been a problem. And, and what, I'm, what I'm saying is that we will never free ourselves from that stain of supremacy until we do that. And yep, thank you. I agree. And, have and Kevin, I think the key to this is bringing people together. I know a lot of young people who have grown up knowing people of other races as co-equals are not as seriously infected with this as are people of our age. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot going on in the world and, you know, let's talk about it. The uh, Secret Service, it's being reported, is spending $3,000 a month on a rental toilet because Jared and Ivanka won't let them use their bathroom. I mean, that's how weird it's getting. But anyhow, on the line, speaking of economics, on the line is economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work, Professor Richard Wolff, also the author of numerous books. His latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at profwolf. And uh, Professor Wolff, welcome back to the program. I'm curious your thoughts on how the gutting of the American middle class, the, the Rand Corporation uh, put out a study about two years ago saying that they thought there about $50 trillion in wealth would have gone to the middle class since the beginning of Reaganomics or since actually the mid 70s, had it not been for neoliberal economic policies. Uh, and instead, most of that money went to the top, you know, 10%. Most of it went to the top 1%. How does that tie into the people that we saw at the U.S. Capitol in your mind? Well, I think the basic story uh, is the following. The system we're living in, capitalism, had its worst collapse and crash in the 1930s. And the interesting thing about that, it lasted from 1929, basically to 1941, when the uh, Second World War got underway. The really interesting thing about that was that the population of the United States, the working class, the mass of employees, really went to the left politically, organized themselves into the greatest uh, union organizing drive in American history, the CIO of the 1930s. You had two socialist parties, you had a communist party, all of them worked together, and they basically went to President Roosevelt at the time, and they said, not in these words, but they said, you've got to help us through this great depression by creating a secure middle class. Uh, they didn't say those words, but I'm going to say it in response to your question. And they got it. They got Social Security when the government came in and set up a retirement program so people over 65 would not be left to the tender or not so tender mercies of their families and friends. Uh, the first minimum wage we ever had, the first federal unemployment uh, compensation program we ever had, and the hiring of, of unemployed people, 15 million of them, uh, to do government jobs, get a salary, keep their homes, and all the rest. And that 
program called the New Deal lasted in its effects, not just in the Depression of the 30s, but it basically continued after the war uh, up until the 1960s into the 1970s. And it created the middle class. It gave wages a big boost. It gave the security of knowing your folks when they got old would be taken care of and wouldn't be a drain on your uh, younger family's expenses and so on. And it taught Americans a lesson that they kind of took to heart. Namely, that if you live in America and you work hard, the usual story, you'll get the American dream, you'll be secure, you will have a middle class or something like that standard of living. And then when the Reagan people came in, you had the reaction against it. Because the way it was paid for, and this is so important for people to understand, the way the unemployment compensation and the Social Security and the government jobs were paid for was by taxing corporations and the rich much more than they had ever been taxed before. You were taxing the rich to help average people. And that's why we got a middle class. And the, the rich people, which should surprise nobody, weren't happy about this. And the corporations neither. And so they got to work and they got a champion, Ronald Reagan, a class B actor, uh, to come in there and talk all about renewal and all the fancy language. But the agenda was simple. Undo the New Deal. Undo it all. Use inflation to make the minimum wage mean nothing. Stop all government employment. In fact, go backwards and lay off people in the government. Shrink the government. All of that kind of talk uh, was undertaken, and, and, you, and you succeeded. You undid the middle class. But, and here's the punchline, having given people the sense that they could have it, it was a trauma over the last 30 to 40 years to take it away. That's why people are so angry. That's why people are so bitter, because you led them to expect what you then took away from them. And if something isn't done to deal with that basic reality, what we saw on January 6th will be repeated. Yeah. You know, there's a, an old saying in um, psychology, I can never know if you really love me, but just keep bringing the flowers. In other words, we, we can never know what's in another person's heart, but we can certainly observe their behavior. There might have been a lot of white racism, there was, in fact, obviously, running around you know, among white people back in Lansing, Michigan, where I grew up, when it was a really growing, booming factory town in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Right. There was no doubt a lot of racism there, but it wasn't being expressed as violently or as openly as it is now because people were busy. They were working. And it just seems like, well, what's your prescription? What do we do? How do we reverse this? Well, the first thing you've got to do is re recognize the importance of what you just said. And I don't mean to flatter you, but it's extremely important not to get lost with the details. Absolutely, there's racism. Absolutely, there was white supremacy. That is part of uh, Trump's base. He's cultivated it, and it was on display on the 6th of January. But it doesn't explain why there were so many other people, many of whom aren't white racists, are there for all kinds of different reasons. You know, the Republican Party is a coalition. So is the Democratic Party. Everybody who voted for Biden isn't enthusiastic about Biden. Many of them were enthusiastic 
about Bernie or about other things, but they made a decision for complicated reasons to do something. And that's true of what happened in January 6th. My response is, take care of the fundamental problem. Give everybody a job. White people will not scapegoat black people anywhere near the way it's happening now if they have a decent job. Both the white people and the black people with a secure income, able to take care of their families, able to give their children a college education without going into absurd debt. Those are the clear ways you change the conditions that produced January 6th. Otherwise, you're going to arrest a bunch of people who certainly deserve it. For the, for the people you're upsetting, they'll become martyrs. You will not have changed the conditions, and therefore you really don't have the right to be surprised if you get similar outcomes from conditions you haven't changed. In fact, it might even harden their resolve. Absolutely, because the bitterness has been building for decades. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. If you add to the economic destruction of these people in this country, white and black, if you add what is now being layered on top of it, namely the COVID disaster and the failure again of this society to protect people against it, to be prepared for it, even to roll out the vaccines to help control it, you are layering more and more pressure and people are going to blow. Those with the most mental trouble already will blow first, but the others are building up ahead of steam. This is an issue that has been kicked down the road for a long time, as has our racial problem, and it's blowing up on us. Yeah, and it's time to deal with it head on. Professor Richard Wolf, brilliant as, as always, sir. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. And check out Professor Wolf's latest book, The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. We'll be back with more of the news of the day in your calls in just a minute. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times by Urshad Manji. This is from Chapter 2. It's titled Our Division Problem. Math teachers tell us that to solve a division problem, we must find the common denominator. From its birth, this nation's common denominator has been diversity. I'm not a fan of that word. A neighbor recently sniped. It divides people. Well, that's one slant on diversity. The word itself comes from the Latin, to turn aside, or as some take it, to splinter and separate. But nature would disagree with that interpretation. Every afternoon, Lil, you meander in the park. Here, diversity is the lubricant of a humming engine. Do you breathe in just one aroma? How about two? Five? She's got a bunch of rescue dogs, and she's writing this book to them, FYI. That's some head tilt you've got going, Lily Bean. You're catching on to my crazy talk, aren't you? It's bananas to isolate and enumerate the smells enveloping you. None of them on its own captures the magic of the intermingling whole. You're gaga about the park exactly for its kaleidoscope of scents that jostle with each other and sometimes get up your nose. See where I'm going with this? Diversity itself doesn't divide. It's what we do with diversity that splits societies apart or stitches them together. That paradox is, to do diversity honestly, that we can't be labeling all of diversity's critics as bigots. You disagree, Lil? 
Well, you're entitled to your opinion, but you haven't let me explain mine. Welcome to the real world, you say? Well, this isn't exactly the real world, is it? You're a conversing canine, for God's sake. Okay, okay, you're right, enough of my defensiveness. Getting my backup won't help you hear me. But if I'm going to work on me, then I need assurance of a fair hearing from you. Deal? Note to self, never expect the mother-daughter relationship to be a picnic in the park. As I was about to explain, Lil, there's more than one way to look at a situation. Some people oppose diversity because they are bigots. Others, though, are skeptical of diversity because how we, its champions, practice it. We're fixated on labeling, and labeling drains diversity of its unifying potential. Since the founding of the U.S. Republic, Americans have extolled the idea of unity in diversity. E pluribus unum, out of many, one, became a gallant motto for the union of the original 13 colonies. No argument, Lil, the colonists were themselves colonizers of native people, of black people, of women and of poor white men. I acknowledge that such labels didn't drop from the clear blue sky. These groups bore the brunt of keeping the United States united. So I'll keep it real too. E pluribus unum has always been an uphill battle. Americans fought a gruesome civil war over the obscenity of slavery, whose promoters reduced human beings to labels. A century earlier, drawing unity from diversity proved to be onerous business of a different sort. It demanded that ardent revolutionaries check their egos. Just before voting on the Constitution, the framers listened to a letter from Benjamin Franklin. He, in turn, had somebody read it out loud. Addressing each signatory as if speaking to him in person, Franklin confessed in the letter, quote, I do not entirely approve of this convention at present, but, sir, I am not sure I shall never approve it. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects, which I once thought right, but found to be otherwise. Take a moment to digest this, Lily. A world-class rebel states publicly that he doesn't know it all, that he's missing something obvious to others, that he might be wrong. Was Ben Franklin written off as a wimp? Nope. His fellow framers knew the value of humility in making the impossible happen. For America's revolutionaries, breaking free from a British despot would be the relatively simple part. Much harder would be replacing despotism with something democratic and doable. The framers' solution? To enshrine and institutionalize diversity of viewpoint. Their logic? In a republic of vastly different regions, cultures, peoples, and perspectives, there's nation-building power in airing disagreements. Diversity of opinion as a common denominator. Sheer genius, Lil. In Why Societies Need Dissent, the legal scholar Cass Sunstein describes this funky formula as, quote, the framer's greatest innovation. Americans, I'm thrilled to tell you, still aspire to that vision. In June 2018, the Harris Poll released findings about what unites and what divides our country. Among the factors that unite, being open to alternative viewpoints. But the deflating reality is people generally mean that other people should be open to their viewpoints. Today, living the revolutionary ideal seems a non-starter, and for various reasons. Hands down, the most controversial reason is the changing makeup of America. It's a landmine of fraught labels, frail identities, and engulfing emotions. Can we talk about it? In this country, brown, black, and multiracial babies outnumber white babies. Beyond our major cities, small towns have started to mix it up. Take Storm Lake, Iowa. The editor of its community newspaper estimates that, quote, 88% of children in our elementary schools are children of color. We speak 21 languages, end quote. Sarah Smarsh, a journalist from Kansas, says that in the past 10 years alone, and thanks to the rise of agricultural agribusiness, her farming community has become home to workers from Mexico, Central America, 
and the Middle East. That's a bundle of change in a flash of time. Thank God America has a history of modeling through. Problem is, Americans can't depend on the past to predict that the future will be tickety-boo. Sure, some prejudice has subsided as successive waves of migrants have integrated. And she continues from there. The book, Don't Label Me, by Irshad Manji. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Well, um, a whole lot of stuff, but I know we don't have a lot of time. But what I'd like to highlight here for you, um, Tom, is the conversation that you and Professor Wolf had concerning the Roosevelt middle class, if you will. And you, to your credit, pointed out that they're even in that middle class reality, predominantly for white folks, Black folks wasn't included in that. Well, correct. So I think, Tom, what we have here, and I don't suggest that you minimize what the black experience was at that time, but I think Professor Wolf kind of jumped over that. And so I would mm -hmm. submit to you, Tom, like what's hatching out and what's being revealed in this space and time is that the South won the war. They assassinated Lincoln, pulled the troops out of the South, and instilled what you call Jim Crow by any other name, slavery, right? And yep. from that point yep. up to right now, where Pellis is doing his thing on voter suppression and all of the stuff that we have been experiencing since our setting foot here, along with the original one percenters, the so-called founding fathers, right, who had mm. no confidence in true democracy, right? And they didn't believe in the so-called unwatched masses. And they believed in the elite ruling over us, just like the elite in the South with the slave master. The regular sure. not, Joe... Not entirely, but, but yes, broadly speaking, yes. But David, the, the one thing that I would add to your analysis, because I think your analysis from beginning to end is spot on and absolutely correct. The one thing I would add is that in the 1960s, with the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and et cetera, through that period, unions started bringing black people into the middle class workplace. And by the 70s, even basically the early 80s, I left Michigan in 1978, but there was a growing black middle class throughout the 1970s in Lansing. You know, I knew people whose dads, black people I whose dads worked you. at Fisher Body. Go for it. May I suggest to you, though, um, my friend, is that even though well, we David first, may I, may I just finish this thought real quick, because we're just about we, we have only one minute left. And my point was that that growing black middle class that came out of that civil rights era in the 60s, number one, came to a largely a stop in the 1980s. But number two, that was what triggered the white rage that brought Reagan to power and that we're seeing as a direct line from there right to here. Back to you, David. Well, even with that so-called period that you would attribute to um, economic advancement during the 60s, I would submit to you, though, too, Tom, here again, what we do is minimize what our experience was in the 60s. I was a child who was raised up during the 50s and 60s and experienced, right, at that period of so-called yeah. black progress, white suppression. 
right? White yep. oppression. We had to watch riots during that period of time. And that was right. for a reason. You see? Right, and into the early 70s, too. Yeah, yeah David, you're, you're absolutely right. And I got to run. I'm sorry, because the, you know, the machine has turned the music on. <laughs> David, thank you for the call, for a, for a good, thoughtful conversation. I appreciate it. On the Science Revolution this week, we have Dr. Justin Frank, MD. He's here on the psychology of authoritarianism. We'll be taking a deep dive into the mind of authoritarianism, where and how the authoritarian mind begins. And Dr. Frank ties the mind of the authoritarian followers to Donald Trump and the whole mess there. Plus, the vaccine effort has failed. Can it be fixed or should we just do the one-shot approach? Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. And welcome back. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, uh, you were talking with a, an earlier caller about evidence and what it is. And evidence is not proof. Proof is a collective series of propositions that leads to a valid conclusion. The evidence may be used in a proposition to make an argument. So, in other words, that's exactly what happens in court is Two opposing attorneys will use Exhibit A and make vastly different propositions about Exhibit A. And we know that Exhibit A is valid. It's true. Okay, so whether or not an evidence is vetted doesn't make the proof. And that's the problem. And without getting too esoteric or recognized. Thank about you for it, that distinction. Well, yes. Yeah, so you have two different types of logic. You have deductive logic, which is your top down from general to specific, which is Aristotelian all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. You have inductive logic, which is, goes from the specific to the general. This is what I want to point out as to why the Trump people don't believe the courts. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of what our judicial system does. Now, you notice that when you were talking earlier in the week with a caller who said that the, the signatures in Pennsylvania were not validated, in almost every case, our judicial system is a common law adversarial system which means two opponents go to the courtroom and the court acts as a referee, a neutral arbiter, and the jury actually determines which argument is the best. But in all these cases, the Trump team never took any opponents to court. They just came in with a complaint and said, oh, it's, this looks fishy, and to ask the court to do exactly what they hate when courts do is they ask the court to figure it out, and the court says, we don't do that. So, for instance, right. if you're going to say that these signatures were not validated, you have to say something. This city clerk failed to validate these signatures on these ballots. And the city clerk gets to say, oh, no, no, and maybe get to use the same piece of Exhibit A to say, no, nope, this is how we use Exhibit A. We're using it to make this argument. And that's what they didn't do. Can you, can you t tell me any of these cases where there was an opponent? There weren't. They just asked the right. court. And that's what's called an inquisitive. We have an adversarial system, and the, some countries in or Europe have a what's called a civil law system, which has an inquisitorial procedures where the court does ask questions. It does become the inquisitor. That's not what we do. And that's what the conservatives say they hate is unelected judges who legislate from the bench. And that's exactly what the hell they ask them to do. That would be the Napoleonic system, wouldn't it, Paul? Yeah, well, the civil law goes way back to Roman times. That's, you know, it's yeah. that's yeah, what that's, that's what it was. Yeah, so, so the point, I think the point is, and nobody is making this point well in the media, 
is that these 60 lawsuits that the Republicans brought were not good faith attempts to highlight problems or irregularities or remedy them or call for remedies to them. They were stunts designed to lend credibility to the big lie that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Right, because they didn't even follow procedure. And that's why the judges were getting very annoyed with them, because you're coming in here asking me to do something other than become a neutral referee of an argument between two adversaries. They didn't have an adversary. They just said, something's fishy here. It must yeah. be. Fun. Yeah. And I think they didn't care what the what the outcome of the court was going to be. And they right. didn't even care if they were going to get slapped down because this was all about PR to support a big lie. Paul, brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Peter in uh, Dotham, Alabama. Hey, Peter, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I was watching the hearing and I got a couple of takeaways from that. And I do agree with one of your earlier callers, with the discussion you and he had about unity and and. Like I said, it all has to start like from the top and work its way down through the Congress and then to the people. And somebody has to start someplace. And, and then in order to settle the, the unity, I think we need to kind of start calling these people out on it. Yeah, and I'm, about I'm, how, uh, yeah I'm completely with you, Peter. And we do need uh, accountability here. Peter, thank you for the call. David in Spotswood, New Jersey. David, you have 45 seconds to the end of the hour and the end of the show. What's up? Oh, I'll, I'll be very quick then. I just wanted to say I've been masquerading as a Trump supporter for the last three or four years when my heart felt totally different. And, you know, I, I think it's very poignant that uh, Timothy Snyder, in the New York Times article, wrote that we all need health insurance to come together. Mm-hmm. I just think that... The people, I think there are people who have suffered over the last four years listening yeah. to this trivial craziness, and, and someone should be done. Yep. David, I'm sorry. We're, we're just flat out of time. I'm sorry to cut you off. But thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us to participate, or it's not a democracy, almost by definition. So get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. And thanks again for being with us today. We'll be back. See you then. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.